Brought to you by Leave the Ring Network. All boxing, no filter. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He get up. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. It is Thursday, December 19th, and this is the Fistionados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Murkowski, former HBO Sports Marketing Executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinatospod. We are brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. Also, before we get started on this episode, shout out to the French newspaper magazine L'Equipe for putting me a quote of mine in the Ruiz AJ2 preview article uh, for any of those. I have not tweeted that out yet, but for any of those people who speak French who listen to this podcast, happy to send it your way, um, but it is in French. Okay, a lot to get through this episode, and I had a couple other plans for the deep dive this week, but I just kind of went with the heavyweight division. I think that's really where we are right now as a sport, and I wanted to look ahead to February 22nd early. Um, so, but before that, let's just get started with the review section. A lot to get through. Uh, let's start. Look, Saturday, December seventh, there were three fight cards. None more important than from Diria, Saudi Arabia, on his own, where Anthony Joshua wins the rematch by wide unanimous decision uh, over Andy Ruiz and reclaims the IBF, WBO, and WBA heavyweight titles. Also on the card, Alexander Povetkin and Michael Hunter fight to a draw. Dillian White beats Marius Vak by unanimous decision. And Philip Ergovich wins by KO2 versus Eric Molina. All these fights were at heavyweights. And, you know, I have said this numerous times. A lot of people have covered it. There was pretty much everything at stake for all parties here. Uh, I am going to focus on the heavyweight division, like I said, for the deep dive. So I will talk mostly about AJ and then Wilder and Fury for that. I'll focus on the rest of the card here. So, as far, and, and I'm going to be focusing mostly on the business side of things in the deep dive. So, just in terms of the main event, the only thing I'll say is, is just how remarkable it was for me that how much tension there was behind AJ executing the game plan. Like, if you watch the fight and you watch the live odds, like it's pretty crazy. It took a long time before AJ finally became like a really strong betting favorite to win. I mean, even in the sixth round, the, the odds were still pretty tight. I mean, it, the, the, there was palpable tension that no one really thought, even with the reason, the weight gain and everything, that he would, that AJ would actually execute the game plan. And he looked shaky doing it. Um, but I think that was a confidence builder, and I think it was something he needed to go through, and, and now he's done it. Ruiz, I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about that performance. 
He clearly mailed it in. I don't love the Buster Douglas comparison just yet. I think he's in a different category for a few reasons. First and foremost, he'll always be the first heavyweight champ of Mexican descent. And second of all, he's kind of lovable for how honest he is with some of this stuff. I mean, he will get a lot more opportunities, but it's really rough when you think about what he left on the table. I mean, yes, he made a lot of money for for these two fights, but he left tens of millions of dollars on the table. I mean, the best case scenario for him was going to be Wilder knocking out Fury. And then if he, had he won, he and Wilder were going to meet on Fox pay-per-view for every single belt and lineal and every undisputed heavyweight thing you could possibly think of. That would have been either Cinco de Mayo, it probably Cinco de Mayo, maybe Mexican Independence Day. And depending on how well Wilder Fury 2 sells, I mean, that's the biggest pay-per-view fight you could make, you know, in years that doesn't involve... I mean, it, it, pretty much in decades, that doesn't involve Floyd Mayweather, basically. So, you know, that is just a, that's just a huge, huge fight. I mean, you know, I should say Oscar De La Hoya, too. But that's it. You're up in that rarefied air. You're up in that thing where the, the goal would certainly be to sell 2 million pay-per-views for Wilder Ruiz, had everything been at stake. I mean, if you just factor in that there's that fight and then probably a rematch, those two fights alone would have been worth probably $50 million to Ruiz probably could have defended the belt before or in between or something like that and gotten paid pretty well for that too. I mean, now you're kind of looking at a fight that's really a prove it fight to stay in the top echelon of heavyweights. And I'm sure it's going to be a soft touch and I'm sure he's going to win, but it was probably going to make like 2 million bucks and come back on Fox and no one's sneering at 2 million bucks. It's a lot of money. But when you look at what could have been, it's that's rough. Um, but he'll get more chances. He'll get more chances. And I still think there's a big fight to be made with him and Wilder on pay-per-view. Uh, and, and I still think there's a narrative for that to happen in, in, in a pretty big way. Either way, Ruiz made close to $20 million in 2019 and 2020 can go either way. I mean, if he takes it really serious and he wins his comeback fight and he comes back and maybe gets Wilder, um, he gets a legit payday. If he doesn't take his career serious, you know, he'll make a comeback fight and then we'll see. Like maybe it's another fight and maybe it's a precipitous decline and maybe it's not. I think the Andy Ruiz story still has a lot to be written, but uh, you, you you do see some of the traditional trappings of, of fighters who have gone through this kind of stuff. The question is, can he bounce back? And, and, and then can he reclaim the public interest in his story? I think he can. I, I'm optimistic about that with him. All right, for everybody else, um, and, and one more thing. It's funny how the storylines work in this because now the storyline is, oh, if Andy Ruiz doesn't take the rest of his career seriously, he's just on a decline. The storyline going into this was if AJ loses, he could just retire. You know, And it it's funny how that much was at stake for kind of the legacy and careers of these two fighters. I mean, now I think it's looked at as, hey, AJ is going to fight three times in 2020 and make a lot of money, and it's all going to be great. It's <laughs> These storylines just show you, and not only how much is at stake, and, and, and but just what how the public views these fighters where they don't, there's not total faith in them yet that they need, that, that they're able to keep delivering. Okay, for everyone else, uh, I thought the Hunter Povetkin fight was a really good one, and a draw is not a bad result for the guy. 
I thought it was a good enough tactical battle. I wouldn't mind seeing the rematch. I'm fine seeing them fight other guys. I mean, I think it was a credible enough spot for both fighters. Like, they could both headline a lower-level DAZN card against the right opponent. Povetkin clearly still has a few more fights at a high level, you know, left in him. But if I was handling him, I'd want him in with Usyk or AJ again as quickly as possible. Hunter could benefit from a little bit more seasoning in the ring at heavyweight. And I think if you're Hearn, he also represents one, you know, that sort of potential return fight to the U.S. for AJ with the right American opponent. Uh, He, you know, he has lost to Usyk, but was competitive. And I think, you know, if you're mapping out sort of what AJ does next, and I'll get to this later in the deep dive, but Hunter could make sense before you go in with someone like Usyk for, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, there's not too much to talk about with the rest of the card. Dillian White did not look good, but he kept his hopes uh, alive for a title shot. Ergovich looks really good, uh, and you just sort of have to wonder what will happen when they step him up against a, a really top 15 guy. Uh, Eric Molina was supposed to give him that sort of crafty veteran touch, and there's just not too many crafty veterans right now. Uh, and and Ergovich just knocked him out. Okay, also on Saturday, December 7th, from New York on Showtime, we have Jamal Charlo beating Dennis Hogan by KO7 for Charlo's WBC middleweight title, which he got after Canelo was elevated to the franchise champ. Also on the card, Chris Eubank Jr. wins over Matt Korobov by KO2 because Korobov essentially had an injury in the middle of the second round. This was for a vacant WBA interim middleweight title. Finally on the card, uh, Ryusoku Iwasa beats Marlon Tapales by KO11 for a vacant IBF interim junior featherweight title. The main event does an average of 249,000 viewers. I think it peaked near 275. It was the 117th rated cable show of the day. The co-main did about 200,000. The opening bout was a little bit less than that. This must be noted was up against pretty stiff competition. There was lots of college football on all day long. There was a UFC card, which was the fourth-ranked cable show of the day, and it did over a million viewers. Um, and actually, the the prelims for UFC did 696,000 viewers, was the top 20 show. Obviously, there was the other DAZN card on. There was an ESPN Plus card on that we'll talk about later. It's It was a rough day to televise an event like this that wasn't was never really going to break through. Um, I think that, you know, the bigger story, the decline of Showtime boxing in the ratings in 2019, it is a tough story for me to cover. I'll be honest. Cause I, I obviously, I worked at the competitive Showtime but pay cable. Nonetheless, it is a significant one. And I think especially coming off such a banner year in 2018, which I have said so many times and I've talked about this here's at some point, at some point, there just has to be a come to Jesus moment here because I've talked about the 2018, the great schedule. That was really the first half of 2018. Once we hit 2020, which is very soon, um, this may be my, I don't even know. I'm either going to, I'll probably do one more podcast before, before 2020. But once we hit 2020, you kind of have to stop talking about the first half of 2018. And you kind of have to look at your numbers. And at this point, Either the fighters on your network aren't resonating or because there's so many other boxing options, many boxing fans have just stopped subscribing to Showtime uh, or just 
your programming isn't breaking through, no one cares about what, you know, the type of programming you're putting on. Again, there was a lot of other boxing. There was UFC on. <clears throat> Maybe having Charlo fight someone who isn't a serious contender and isn't a household name, which by the way, I mean you look at you look at how this fight went and you gotta wonder about Jaime Mugia, but that's that's a, that's a narrative for another time. Um, you know, Charlo is this is now a couple fights in a row where he hasn't fought someone who's a really serious title contender, um, and his audience has declined. And 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 you have to say that it's he should be fighting guys who are elite competition. There's plenty of elite competition for him. There's obviously, he's having sort of the same issue that Terrence Crawford is, and we'll get to him in a second. Uh, I will leave it for right now as he needs Demetrius Andre. Demetrius Andre needs him. I don't think it's realistic for Charlo, or maybe maybe it's starting to become realistic for Andre to get a crack at some of the big moneymakers like Canelo or Triple G. Uh, but... These guys, if they were to fight each other, I really think the world would open up, probably for both of them, but certainly for the winner. Um, moving down the card, it's a bummer that the injury to uh, Korobov stopped that fight going forward. That was a that, that should have been a really good fight, and I have to give Showtime a lot of credit for putting that one on. That's kind of bad luck that that happened. And then, you know, the opening fight was fun, but we'll see how that works out. There wasn't a whole lot at stake. Finally, on Saturday, December 7th, from Puebla, Mexico, and on ESPN+, Plus, we had two more title fights. Emmanuel Navarrete beat Francisco Horta by KO4 uh, for Navarrete's WBO Junior Featherweight title, and Jerwin Ancajas wins by KO6 over Miguel Gonzalez for Ancajas' IBF Junior Bantamweight title. Not a whole lot more to say about this one. Obviously, there's no ratings because it was on ESPN+. Plus. Significant that it was in a foreign country, and, and, and we'll probably see more of that. Um, okay, let's move on to the following weekend. On Friday, December 13th, from Indio, California, and on to zone, we have Virgil Ortiz Jr. beating Brad Solomon by KO5 at welterweight. We also saw Alberto Machado winning by KO2 in a comeback fight against Luis Porozo. This was a nice test for Ortiz. I mean, Solomon is definitely a fighter who can be awkward and difficult inside the ring. He was definitely not made to order, so to speak, for Ortiz. Credit Golden Boy for putting Ortiz in tough credit Ortiz for being dominant and passing a pretty solid test. He passed with flying colors. I really like fights like these when you're developing a fighter's career. I like that Ortiz is doing it this early in his career. And I like that Golden Boy and DeZone put this fight on Friday rather than Saturday. They did not want to compete with the big sports day that was going on Saturday. So uh, when you're doing sort of lower level, not lower level, this isn't really tier three, this is sort of a tier two type of fight, credit them for putting it on Friday night. <clears throat> okay, let's, we're, we're almost done with the review. On Saturday, December 14th, from New York, and on ESPN, it was now officially a yearly tradition, we have Terrence Crawford beating Ka Mean Machine Igidis Kavaluskas by KO uh, to keep his WBO welterweight title, also in the card, Teofimo Lopez wins by KO2 over Richard Comey to win Comey's IBF lightweight title. Michael Conlon wins by a wide unanimous decision over Vladimir Nikitin to avenge his Olympic loss. The fight card averages 1.350 million viewers. It was the number three show of the night on cable. 
It follows the Heisman Trophy presentation, which was the number one show of the night on cable, uh, and the viewership actually declined through the broadcast, which brought up an interesting uh, Twitter debate, which is, you know, should you throw your main event on right after a big lead-in like that? Uh, and we've now, you know, we've seen evidence both ways. During last in 2018, when Crawford fought after the Alabama football game, they lost viewership and then gained viewership. Here, they lost viewership, didn't really gain it back, uh, which... I don't know what that says. I mean, this is still a pretty good number, and it's not as good as what ESPN and Top Rank have done in the past after the Heisman Show, but the Heisman Show also had less audience than it, it had in the past. Um, so there's a, a there's not a whole lot of takeaways you can you can get from this other than there are probably some disappointing trends, but I would argue that there have been disappointing trends on regular ESPN all year. And I've kind of made that argument in the past. Um, And I think a lot of it is because of larger corporate issues where Top Rank has put a lot of their top content on ESPN+. That is really for another debate. It doesn't really affect the show. I think here, uh, you know, it was a pretty strong card but Crawford wasn't, you know, his opponent, Cavaluskas, wasn't well-known, put up a great fight, but it was a mandatory title shot. And I think we kind of saw this narrative coming in, like it was smart of top rank to do that. That did not prevent, actually, I'll tell you what, let me get through the undercards first, and then I'm just going to go off a little bit on Crawford. So, uh... Tiafimo Lopez looks scintillating in his win. My question with this is pretty simple. If he's fighting Lomachenko, how are they doing the fight? Is it on network ESPN? Is it on ESPN Plus? Is it on pay-per-view? That is a huge fight. I think people would get really excited about that. I don't know how well it would sell on pay-per-view. It's it's one of those fights that either it has to be a complete centerpiece ESPN main network fight or it's kind of, it's kind of tough it's like if it's on ESPN plus or, or or pay-per-view it's in that neither fish nor foul territory where you don't know how well it's going to sell on pay-per-view and on ESPN plus you you are now at the point I mean people have talked about now they have like 3.5 million subscribers you're not at the point where you think you can draw a pretty good audience but you wonder whether it should just be something uh that gets exposed on network tv because low Whoever wins that fight is probably going to go after Javante Davis. Lomachenko has stated his intention to do that, and Top Rank and, and PBC seem to be working together a little bit more. That's what Bob Arum is saying. Tiafimo Lopez, if he wins that fight, clearly would be on a path to pay-per-view very soon. So you wonder, there's, there's going to be an interesting debate on how they handle that. I do think it's an incredible fight, though. Conlon's win, I mean, kind of meh. But he had a huge audience for it, uh, so you just hope that that's going to translate pretty well moving forward so he can headline his own cards on ESPN or ESPN+. Plus. But going back to Crawford, there was a lot of great reading in the week of the fight, just sort of in this issue which constantly comes up with things. It's PBC has most of the fighters on the other side of the street, most of the meaningful fighters in his weight class. Top Rank is out there saying they're working with PBC, and they're definitely looking to make fights across the aisle. You can tell they're trying to get out ahead of this one. And here's part of the reason why. And I think this gets kind of lost in 
sort of the overall narrative here of, of what's really happened. Top Rank signed Crawford to a big deal where he was making over $3 million uh, per fight. And I think this one, his purse was like $4 bucks. He can certainly make more. And they made this fight his mandatory. So they kind of bought themselves some time uh, to get this situation rectified. I mean, this, you know, this year in particular, PBC really sort of stepped up at welterweight. Uh, and, and kind of and, and froze Crawford out for, you know, in a lot of different ways. And when you're looking at Crawford, I mean, he clearly just needs to get bigger fights at welterweight. He unified 140. He had a very solid run at 135. Uh, and he fought most of the time. The, the top fights out there for him at 135 and 140, most of them he, he got. Now, he's not top fighting the top welterweights right now. And <clears throat> there's only so long that can go on. And I think the, you know putting in the mandatory again, smart move by top rank, uh, but I think this is a lot more complicated than just PBC is trying to freeze Crawford out. It's really first of all, until this year, PBC welterweights weren't really fighting each other consistently either, and certainly not in a way that was going to build a pay per view star out of the scenario. This year, that changed, and that changed. You know, Manny Pacquiao helped that change. Pacquiao Thurman did well, did really well. Spence Porter seemed to be profitable, no matter what you hear the buy rate was. Uh, but I think that they did very fiscally responsibly. Um, or you know, even if if they did lose money, it was a tiny amount. I think they I think they made money on that. And there's this weird game of poker going on right now because I think Crawford. What I have heard, I don't know this to be fact. He's got two. Uh, he's got two fights left on his top rank deal, so not that many either way. He's two fights into his pay per view career. He has not sold particularly well, and that could be a function of who he's fought uh, from a competitive standpoint. You could argue that he's just not a big enough star. I don't think I would make that argument yet. I think you know his he, he he's fought two guys that you can make an argument weren't ever going to be competitive fights on pay-per-view. Uh, so they didn't resonate. Postal, who, who no one knew, and Amir Khan, who people knew, but Amir Khan was a much bigger star several years ago. And I think when he signed his deal with Top Rank, it was well above market rate because there weren't successful pay-per-view fights happening at welterweight outside of Mayweather or Pacquiao. And that world has now changed. And now he kind of has a deal that's market rate or maybe even under market rate compared to what the paydays that Spence or Porter or any of the Pacquiao opponents have made. Uh, and so on the surface, it seems like it would make a lot of sense for Crawford to just hop over and join PBC. And many people are calling for him to do that. And it's pretty clear here that PBC, like I said, has made a concerted effort to freeze him out in order to accomplish that goal. They want him to realize he needs to come over to that side of the street. But if you're Crawford, why would you go over to PBC unless they really promised you a ton of money? But if you're PBC, why would you promise him a ton of money? Because that's a pretty risky proposition because right now you're probably losing money on the Manny Pacquiao pay-per-views you're doing. And Errol Spence is probably the only pay-per-view star that you've developed who can actually fight on pay-per-view. And it doesn't matter as much who the opponent is. He's now fought twice 
and they've probably made money on both pay-per-view fights. And Errol Spence is obviously recovering from a car crash, and Pacquiao, who wouldn't fight Crawford when they were both with top rank, only has one fight left on his PBC deal. And again, PBC's probably losing money on Manny Pacquiao you know, pay-per-view fights. So would PBC still try and freeze out Crawford? I mean, maybe. Maybe they would. Top rank now does have some in-house options that have emerged. Jose Ramirez, Crawford Ramirez would probably sell pretty well on pay-per-view. Probably enough. I don't know what the guarantees would be, but probably enough to make some money. What do you do? It's a great question. I mean, if you're PBC, if you make Crawford Spence, Spence Crawford, whatever you want to call it, it would actually, because of the risk now associated, because you're not sure if Terrence Crawford, you're not sure what level of star he is, what guarantee, what the guarantees would be required, uh, it might actually be smart to make sure top rank is part of it and alleviate some of that risk. I also think that you may want to, if you're not sure how much of a star someone like Sean Porter or Danny Garcia is on pay-per-view, which let's be clear, you're not, it might be smart to have top rank take the risk and pay for Crawford to fight someone like Porter or someone like Danny Garcia especially if you are losing money on some of these other pay-per-view fights. DAZN is now an option, thanks to Mikey Garcia being over there. Especially given their worldwide ambitions, Crawford could also fight Josh Taylor, which would probably drive worldwide subs in a pretty strong way, assuming Taylor stays with DAZN. And so it's a weird position for everyone to be in. It might actually benefit... It might actually be riskier for top rank if 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 Crawford's going to fight Porter, it might actually benefit uh, PBC to have top rank take the risk and do it. Um, you know, if you're just going to do a joint pay per view, that might be the smart way to do it. Or maybe you think you have enough in house options to just continue freezing him out. But I'm not sure at this point why he would sign with you. If you're freezing him out, you're kind of screwing him over and you're kind of letting him know that when you come over to that side of the street, your in-house fighters are going to get the advantage over the newly signed Terrence Crawford. So it's it's this weird relationship poker kind of that's going on. And I don't know what exactly the answer is. I think it's encouraging that PBC and Top Rank are starting to work together. And then you put the the zone thing in there where fights that wouldn't necessarily sell well on pay-per-view in the United States, especially, I mean, I don't know when specifically DAZN would be looking to enter certain markets. Obviously, if they're entering the UK market at some point soon, you know, Crawford versus Taylor is a great, I mean, obviously AJ is going to be the best way to do that, but Crawford versus Taylor is a great way to do something like that. And that's a fight that wouldn't sell that well in the United States. That's a fight that, you know, it, they're talking, you know, Eddie Hearn's talking about going back to Saudi Arabia. Could you do something like that? You know, maybe that's Terrence Crawford's a big name. And, and, and if you get the right site fee, maybe that's where you, you can do something like that. It's all very interesting. And, you know, I, I go back to why did Tyson Fury sign with top rank? And obviously the guaranteed money is part of it, but there's no point in, in if you're Tyson Fury in signing with Deontay Wilder if you know that that's the big fight that's going to make everybody a ton of money 
and you know that every advantage is going to go to the PVC in-house fighter, Deontay Wilder, you want to sign with another promoter to protect your own interests. It's something to consider. And I don't know how this is going to work out. This is a deep dive waiting to happen. I mean, now DeZone has Mikey Garcia, who's a player. DeZone is clearly going to make a play for Manny Pacquiao. And we don't know. Spence had an incredibly bright commercial future, but that's up in the air. And we don't know that any other fighter except maybe Sean Porter is going to resonate enough that you can make a pay-per-view fight. And Crawford versus Porter would probably do okay on pay-per-view. I'm not sure it would do amazing on pay-per-view. So let's see what happens here. There's a lot, again, this is kind of, consider this the appetizer to a future deep dive. All right. For the deep dive this week, let's just look at the heavyweight division. Let's look at the results of the last two big fights. Let's set the stage for 2020 in boxing's glamour division. Again, I was not planning on doing an episode like this, but I think the results are dramatic enough in both sides. And I'm including the Wilder Ortiz 2 pay-per-view results here. And I think a few of the big points I want to touch here are, like, number one, we've we've seen some promising pay-per-view numbers from a standpoint of, like, okay, these fights are generating enough revenue so they don't fit the network model anymore. But what we've also seen is a complete failure to have breakout pay-per-view numbers. And I want to take a look at what that means for February 22nd, especially with the expectations that are coming in. We saw DAZN finally leak some numbers for what they viewed as a success for the Joshua Ruiz 2 fight. And I think it's how can we judge what their business model is and what they're looking to do in the heavyweight division. How is that shaping up? And how's that going to affect the heavyweight landscape? And is there going to be clarification to establish a true star? The stakes are so high in this division. How the performances are so sort of going in and coming out of the ring for Wilder Fury 2, um, and not just in the ring, but on pay-per-view, and how what AJ does and how that affects DAZN's worldwide subscriber rate, these are major, major things. And they may there may be impacts, you know, again, there are these ripple effects that go beyond just the simple U.S. market, and that's going to affect who these guys fight. So let's just start laying out some facts and numbers. And before we even get into DAZN, let's just let's look at Wilder Fury 2. And so if you look at the measurable numbers for Wilder and Fury's last two fights, well, there are some positives. There are some major, major concerns. Gate numbers in, in total for both. And this is, this is also, let's look at tickets sold and let's look at total revenue. These are major concerns. And then pay-per-view numbers and TV viewing numbers, they're a concern as well. I mean, we don't have them for Fury, but they're a concern for Wilder. There are some positives from, from his fight in May uh, where the highlights went pretty viral, but Definitely did not hit a million viewers. He, he didn't even hit 900,000 viewers. And the pay-per-view numbers, you know, I didn't really get into this last episode too much in terms, I talked a little bit about how people got to the numbers. I, well, okay, first of all, let's just say that. The, let's start with the gate. The gate for Fury's last two fights was just, they weren't high at all. Tom Schwartz and Otto Valin, I mean, he did under a million dollar gate for both fights. I don't even know. He may have sold twelve or 13,000 total tickets for both fights combined. And Wilders were better 
against Ortiz in terms of total take. I think he was around four million bucks for the gate, so that dramatically beats Tyson Fury. But he only sold like seven or eight thousand tickets too. I mean, and I think he sold more tickets for the fight in May, but the gate wasn't as high. And going back to that pay per view number. The two reported numbers here are 225 and 275 for Wilder's pay-per-view rematch with Ortiz. I mean, I'll just be upfront. I personally have not put a real number out there. I would not put it as high as 275 for sure. I would probably not even put it as high as 225. The, the biggest indicators that I've got direct information of have put the have put the fight significantly less than 200 thousand pay-per-view buys that doesn't mean put putting together a pay-per-view number in this day and age and i've talked about this a bit it's so freaking hard at this point there used to just be a formula for it and now it's like you gotta you literally have to talk to do it in my opinion accurately you probably have to talk to 10 different people um directly and get numbers for them and sort of aggregate them together because the formula is changing constantly and that's because legacy companies like direct tv are essentially dumpster fires now in terms of, of, of how they do this. And the cable industry is just restructuring. It is going through a constant re restructuring of how they view this kind of thing. And, it, you know, there is going to be a come to Jesus moment where everybody, I think, works together. There's just too much money at stake. And I think as these businesses start to stabilize a little bit, uh, then there might be a formula that you can come back to. But rather than even get an exact number for that, I think the more important takeaway is Fox put an immense amount of marketing muscle behind the fight. And any number less than, let's just see, let's say 300. Any number less than 300 has to be viewed as a massive disappointment. I'm sure the goal was to get over 400. The way I was tracking how people were marketing it, uh, that, that that was clear. And it's I'm isolating Wilder right now because I mean I think there's just a strong argument that the the general public is just starting to figure out who he is. And the general public certainly doesn't care. They certainly didn't know who Ortiz was, and they certainly didn't care. And we literally don't have viewing numbers on Fury because the events were on ESPN Plus. I mean, just based on the buzz that was around the events. You can say he probably wouldn't be a major draw on pay-per-view right now. Now, he's done a couple impressive runs to the ESPN PR machine. He did the WWE pay-per-view. That was really smart. I mean, I think there's some natural crossover audience specifically for him. But is I think what we can go ahead and say right now is for as great of a talker as he is, and for as great of a puncher as Wilder is, they both need meaningful dance partners. In some ways, these guys are perfect for each other. I mean, that last time they did this, they sold 17,000 tickets and 325,000 pay-per-views. And some of that is there's this old-school boxing pay-per-view sort of truism, philosophy, whatever you want to call it. That what you want to do on pay-per-view is bring together fighters with different fan bases. And I don't think we have enough information to say that this they totally did that. I think you're still... With these guys, what I would say is when you're under 500,000 pay-per-view buys, you're still in the hardcore fan base. So even though it's different elements of the hardcore fan base uh, that these guys appeal to, and I think that's broadening. I do, uh, despite the numbers that we've seen. I, I think their name recognition is out there. But what you want to do is bring together two fighters with completely different 
sets of fan bases outside of the hardcore boxing audience. And that's how you make a big pay-per-view. And I think we're seeing a mini version of that with these guys. Wilder is probably starting to attract people to buy his really big fights who aren't necessarily normal boxing fans. I think I think he's starting to get casual interest. Now, they haven't converted to watch. I mean, it's really tough to, to with the Brazil fight, I take that viewing number with a grain of salt because it was over in first round. So it's really tough to say. I mean, that could have that number could have increased to well over a million viewers uh, if you're giving him the benefit of the doubt. Um, and and this pay per view, I think there are some fights. You know, I kind of said this in the preview. There are some fights that just boxing hardcore fans are going to be like, I'm not going to pay for that. I know value. That fight is in value, and I think most people agree that Wilder Fury is value, and they're going to buy it. But these are warning signs here that you're you're starting to see. And I think, too, one of the big things that's been missing here is, I say this a lot, boxing pay-per-view, it's part art and part science. And you're not just pushing tune-in for something free over the air. You're actively selling something that costs the viewer 75 bucks. Hardcore fans understand that. And you have to do a great job at not only pushing awareness for the fight, but making people, pushing conversions, making people convert to actually purchasing the pay-per-view. And let's just pause right here and get into that a little bit later. But let's go over and look at DAZN for a second. DAZN actually seemed to be really happy with the AJ Ruiz rematch. They leaked to Mike Coppinger that there were over 200,000 signups to the service, mostly in the U.S., specifically for that fight. And given that they were up against the Big 12 and SEC title games, given that the fight was essentially on a 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and how little they paid in a license fee because the fight was in Saudi Arabia, I've, um, you know, I've heard a couple different numbers. Let's just say no one would ever claim that they paid over five million bucks for that fight, probably less. Then that's one of the most extremely efficient subscriber gainers you can ever see in terms of cost. You know, Ruiz fits the profile of one of the demographics that they're chasing hard with Canelo. He's Mexican American. Uh, he's a great story. Obviously, it's a glamour division. You know, there's a flip side of this too, though. When you look at the zones global business which has been estimated at 8 million subs worldwide, and with about 10% of those subs in the U.S., so they're almost at a million. Look, AJ fought in Saudi Arabia. He's a British star. He's a worldwide star. Like, you can make an argument that for as, as strong of the headway that they've made in the American market, and they certainly expected to make more headway. I'm sure that's the case. But 800000 in a year is still pretty good. you got to start saying, okay, is it better to focus on the worldwide sub game? Because at a certain point, it doesn't matter where the subs come from. I mean, it, it matters a little bit. Like, obviously, in the U.S., they're going to pay a premium for the subscription service that they're not going to pay anywhere else. Uh, and the U.S. is the biggest market in the world. But, like, zone could enter the U.K. soon. I don't know that for a fact. I'm, uh, You know, obviously, there's plenty of countries they could enter and probably gain much larger subscriptions, spending much less money, and do it faster. And their goal is to get worldwide subscriptions. So it's is 200000 a good amount 
for that. Like, yeah, that's a good amount for that fight. You have to say this is a, a success for them. You also have to say, wow, Deontay Wilder probably outsold AJ Ruiz too, even though his pay-per-view cost almost four times the price of, of, of zone for a month. It's not apples to apples for, for a lot of reasons. It's not. And it's not really fair. And I think there's another way to look at it, which is to say PBC probably lost a ton of money on Wilder's last fight, but Matchroom probably made a tremendous amount of money on AJ's last fight. You know, so it, but you're starting to see, I think the overall point here is you're starting to see where these two parallel universes are conflicting and where there's some issues. And it's not just that in the American market, one, the distribution way for, for DAZN is not pay-per-view and the distribution way for, for PBC or ESPN is pay-per-view. So let's go back to Wilder and Fury for a second. This last set of results, there's, there's not quite a bit of pressure on Wilder Fury 2 to perform. And to, to some extent, the pressure has always been on. Like ESPN invested a ton of money in Fury. Um, it, you know, my understanding is it's not coming out of their overall top-ranked deal. So to recoup on that investment, like they either need to get a huge amount of ESPN Plus signups, which I'm sure, you know, I, I have no information on this, but I can tell you, I'm sure that they, whatever they paid for it, it's not, the signups that they're getting aren't justifying the cost of him fighting. And because you know, mostly just because those are the wrong matchups, like those can't be driving ESPN Plus subscriptions. So more likely it's going to be, the recoup is going to come by putting on big pay-per-view events. And I mean, this can mean a lot of different things for ESPN as well. Like, first of all, ESPN, just like Fox, they can collect a distribution fee. And if they're smart, they'll be doing kind of what Fox is doing and getting better rates with the cable companies than what HBO or Showtime got. But second of all, doing these big events, especially in periods like late February, I mean, this is a perfect fit for the ESPN machine. It's like, that's a pretty dead period for sports. Traditionally, it's right after the NBA All-Star game. It's a few weeks after the Super Bowl and the NFL playoffs have, have concluded. Um, but it's before March Madness, and it's before a lot of other sports have, are starting to ramp up. So they can just fill... They, this This is the type of big event that can fill a couple weeks of, of content for them on their studio shows, their shoulder programming, when otherwise they would have a tough time doing it. So that's important for them. And then, you know, third, I mean, the ESPN Plus setup, I mean, it's basically built for pay-per-view. I mean, with what they do for the UFC, they charge you less if you're an ESPN subscriber for pay-per-view uh, if you do it through ESPN Plus. So if you can pull this off or a version of this off for boxing as well, in some ways it makes it tougher to sell pay-per-views, but it's also you're owning the combat sports pay-per-view market if you can distribute it exclusively. I mean, that's not going to happen for this fight, but they're gaining information every single time they do it. Um, and this this is how they're attempting to cut out cable companies. So this is, it basically gives them another bite at the apple on the consumer to be able to sell it through ESPN+. Plus. I mean, Fox... They have less at stake than ESPN because they don't have Deontay Wilder signed to an exclusive contract like ESPN did with Tyson Fury. So they're not on the hook for his money, but they still have a lot of stake. I've really never seen a company just dive 
into pay-per-view with such a with such a commitment like they have and get such an underwhelming result with Wild Ortiz too. I mean, I legitimately think that the Fox platform was so effective in terms of awareness play that ad might have run in front of more people for Wild Ortiz too than any pay-per-view I ever worked on in my time at HBO, which includes Mayweather Pacquiao. I'm not even kidding when I say that. And so the big question ends up being like, why didn't people, why didn't more people convert for that fight? And what does that mean for pay-per-view bias for Wilder Fury 2? And here's some of the warning signs. In addition to the numbers that we listed up top, I'm not sure there's been a pay-per-view outside of maybe like Mayweather McGregor with more variance in how it could perform. And I mean, that one, whatever questions there were about how well that one would perform, immediately got eviscerated on, on the on the full-on media tour that they went on, which made it pretty clear there was serious demand for that. And for this one, we've seen Aram throw out numbers like 2 million as being possible. You know, we've seen people in the media say 1.5 million is possible. And I don't really have an issue. Like, I don't strongly disagree with either of those as long as they're talking about what's possible and not what's likely. I mean, I think 2 million means that every single thing has gone right and I mean, I can just already tell you, we would have already had to see some things happening for every single thing to go right. So I doubt we'll get there. And 1.5 is still reasonable. But when you stare hard at those numbers and how the past couple of events when these guys performed, you have to think that like, yeah, well, that's possible. You still have to have a lot of things go right. And we start looking at what what could go wrong. Well, the floor has now got to be lower than previously estimated. I mean, remember the first fight did 325 with almost no precedent. And now it's like, well, this can probably do a million, but maybe the floor is, is a lot less than we thought, especially if, if Wilder Ortiz 2 did under 200. I mean, I'm not saying it did. I'm just saying, you know, obviously some metrics pointed to that. Maybe the floor is 600. Maybe it's 500. Maybe, maybe it's 700. It's, it's definitely lower than the million, though. I think people would be thrilled with a million. I mean, I think they're saying a much higher number to put it out there now, but the floor is probably a lot lower than we thought. And Fury hasn't even fought on pay-per-view. You have to question both of their star power. Also, when you look at what's been going on with the promotion, if they were mobilized this would be up and running right after AJ Ruiz and we'd start to see a lot of things. I mean, February 22nd is closer than you think. Even if these fighters are staying in shape right now and they only need like an eight week camp, that would basically mean that they, they're entering fight camp right around Christmas. And I've heard nothing about a press conference, a press tour, anything like that. We're, we're getting close to, we're December 19th right now. Like that is really, really close. And I think my one of my big things here is when I say it's part art and part science, there needs to be a to selling a pay-per-view, there needs to be some real crafting of a narrative for this pay-per-view to be successful. And who knows if that's going to be accomplished with ESPN and Fox working together on this one. I mean, I've worked on pay-per-views where companies work together and they're hard. And that's because there's a lot of voices in the room. There's a lot of opinions on how this could go. And a lot of egos can get in the way. Maybe 
that won't happen with ESPN and Fox, and maybe they'll be able to get it right. But if you if you're going to criticize ESPN and Fox, and granted, ESPN has really only had one crack at this so far on pay per view, it's that neither have been able to sell a narrative in the way that Showtime did, especially for the first fight on this. Both Fox and, and ESPN, but especially Fox, have put a lot of effort into shoulder programming. But in my opinion, if you look at the art, the spot, and the shoulder programming, none of it's been great. You can make it you can make a case it's really been bad. And Showtime and HBO have done a lot better at crafting a real storyline behind each of the fights and really selling you on making sure you need to buy that $75 fight. Now, Fox and ESPN have a much larger mouthpiece to to get awareness out, but 10-second on-air spots, all they do is increase awareness. They don't – this isn't Thursday Night Football where it's Aaron Rodgers versus Lamar Jackson or whoever – really recognizable stars that that even a, a, a casual fan can just sit there and think, oh yeah, I'll watch that. I'll also watch it for free when I watch it. This is something you have to craft a real narrative. When you're selling a pay-per-view, the marketing, the PR, and the programming teams need to be 100% aligned on what to do because, again, pay-per-view is a luxury product and you're asking people to pay 75 bucks for something that's positioned as an elite event. There needs to be deep storylines in the shoulder programming. And we just haven't seen that. We've seen like, okay, here's these guys training. Okay, here's what home life is like. And it's not a documentary on these guys. When you're doing it right, you're really selling narratives that make people want to buy the fight. I mean, just compared to what Showtime does, you can tell Showtime has people with real institutional knowledge of how to do this. They probably spend more time in training camp with them. They go much deeper. And look, it's still early days for Fox and ESPN. And again, I've said this before, their marketing teams aren't built to do this. They're built, you know, especially ESPN. I mean, they have so many events on there. There's, they can't afford to just have people totally devoted to spending a lot of time on crafting these narratives. But it's more, you know, it's more WWE than it is just blasting out when an event is happening and knowing people show up because it's a big sport like the NFL or NBA or whatever. So what happens after this? I mean, is this going to sell well? I, I still think it really can. I really do. I have a lot of faith in it. But there's warning signs. We're already seeing them. And what happens after the fight? Even if the fight is great but the sales aren't great, you hope there's still a commitment from both sides, but who knows? And remember, DAZN is not too far away from removed from offering Wilder forty million each, you know, for two AJ fights, forty million a fight. And if this one really underperforms, then PBC has to start with, like, what are you doing with Deontay Wilder? If you're constantly losing money on his fights, maybe you should have just had him fight on DAZN. It alleviates all the risk for you. It goes back to a version of what I was talking about with Terence Crawford. This one's all set up so they're going to fight on pay-per-view twice. You know, if you're Fox and you're like, I'm not getting the returns, like we're putting all this marketing effort into it, we're not getting the returns we want, you really got to question what you're doing. I don't want to get too depressing on this because I still do have confidence that this is going to do pretty well. I think it can do Canelo Triple G numbers uh, if done right. I think it can hit a million buys. 
And if it does that, even though Aram is claiming now it's $2 million, if it hits a million buys, I mean, heavyweight boxing is back in a major way. And I think, you know, people are just going to be happy because they're probably not going to lose their shirts. But I don't know what the deals are. Maybe if if, if Wilder is a huge guarantee for this, maybe, maybe a million isn't enough for PBC. I don't know. And where this starts to get a little bit more depressing is when you go to the alternate universe stuff. Because AJ's path in 2020 is pretty clear. And it was pretty clear before even Hearn started talking about it in the press. I mean, the mandatories for all his belts are coming up. And it looks like he'll keep his IBF title and fight Pulev who's the IVF mandatory, and that fight probably makes sense in the UK. I think everybody can agree on that. Hearn said he wants to keep his WBO title fight, but who knows? He may want to drop it. I mean, that's convenient for Hearn because Usyk is the WBO mandatory. I guess if you're going to make the Usyk fight, then it probably makes sense to just make that. That's a huge fight, but I could probably see... Hearn saying now AJ wants to be undisputed, he doesn't want to lose the belt, but also, look, if you're going to lose it, lose it to someone in your stable, it's pretty easy to get it back, that's a makeable fight. Given how shaky AJ looked against Ruiz, and look, we'll get another, we'll get another crack at Pulev, so maybe he, he will look much better against Pulev. Are you, do you really want to make AJ versus Usyk? I mean, I guess the argument's there. If you're going to make that fight, you might as well make it early before Usyk really gets the right amount of weight on him at heavyweight. But Usyk's a dangerous fight for AJ. Where does that fight happen? I mean, there's a chance AJ doesn't fight in the United States in 2020. And I know Eddie's talking about AJ Wilder. But all of a sudden, we're back at that place. I mean, Wilder needs to beat Fury. He may need to beat him twice. You know, given the uncertainty of uh, you know of money there, I and mean, maybe that works out to their advantage, maybe it doesn't. AJ would be a, pro- a prohibitive favorite against Pula, but given how shaky he looked, I mean, who knows? Pula's not a bad fighter. Once it gets to AJ fighting Usyk, I mean... Are you sure you want that? I think I'd much rather, you know, I'd much rather see AJ fight Wilder. Is the buzz going to be gone for that by the time it happens? All these questions start to pop up. And because they're parallel paths, because each company has different goals, not just in the United States, but worldwide. I mean, 2020 could be the year where every major heavyweight fight, tanks at the box office, and we're in for one of the biggest letdowns, and they all just start fighting other people for less money. Or if these things actually sell, it could be a really exciting year of fights. If they sell really well, we're probably not going to see Wilder and AJ unless they sell really, really, really well, in which case maybe AJ does take a break from zone to fight one fight on pay-per-view. But if they underwhelm and Wilder wins, maybe, and the PBC continues to lose money on him, maybe the PBC does bring him to the zone. These are all things that are, it's so up in the air, and it really just depends on how the public embraces, how the U.S. general casual fans embrace heavyweight boxing. And I'm not sure they'll embrace AJ. I'm pretty sure, given the chance, they'll embrace Wilder. There's certainly some part of them that's going to embrace Fury, um, just given who he is and how he talks. Um but not that much. I mean, he's British. He's not American. Wilder's got a much higher ceiling than him. And I think given Wilder's power, Wilder can certainly do it. But when you watch Wilder fight, if you're a general, if you're a casual fan, 
I mean, he doesn't strike you as like this boxing superstar. He lost every round against Ortiz basically until he knocked him out. It's almost like he's a superhero with a special weapon. It's just, it, it, to me, it's fascinating. To me, it's fascinating. And we're going to be following this as we've done all year. Continue to follow this. There's so much at stake here because they always say as the heavyweight division goes, so does boxing. It couldn't be more true in 2020. This is going to define 2020 in a lot of ways. All right, on to the preview section. We actually have quite a bit of good boxing come up at a time when the schedule is usually barren. Um, that changed last year and, and this year when the same boat. So tomorrow, Friday, December 20th, in Phoenix on DAZN, we have Daniel Jacobs fighting Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. at super middleweight. Also on the card, Julio Cesar Martinez fights Christopher Rosales for a vacant WPC flyweight title. And Mo Hooker uh, gets back in the ring. You're also going to see some Gabe Rosado, some Josh Kelly, um, you know, Liam Smith, Nikita Ab- Dhabi, whatever. Jacobs is anywhere between a 14 and a 31 favorite over Chavez Jr. Martinez is about a 3-1 favorite over Rosales. That's a great fight, actually. That co-main is great. Um, it's a you know nice little card. I am biased. I love both Danny Jacobs and Chavez Jr. for a variety of different reasons. So I'm biased. I'm really interested in that. Um, what does it mean? I mean, obviously, we already see, I'm recording this at a time when Chavez has already missed weight. Um, some people think that's disappointing. I think that's just Chavez being Chavez. And, and he means so much to the sport with his fan base that if you're Jacobs, you just, you take the fight. You just do, you, you do whatever. Um, there was obviously some legal hurdles to getting this fight done, which made it a little bit harder to market. But Credit to Zone. I mean, I think this is a, a really strong card. I think this is going to draw a big audience. And I think it's a worthy fight for Danny Jacobs to take. And I think it's a worthy chance for Chavez Jr. Um, on Saturday, December 21st, from on ESPN Plus from London, we have Daniel Dubois versus Kiyotaro Fujimoto at heavyweight. There's a few other semi-interesting people on the card. But at this point, Daniel Dubois is a big favorite. He's 75 or 100 to 1. Liam Williams is is he's out there. He's like a three or four to one favorite against Alantes Fox. Maybe that's interesting. Uh, but this is all about Daniel Dubois, who I think is probably the most talented young heavyweight out there. I shouldn't say probably. He's by far the most talented he- young heavyweight out there. I mean, remember he's like six years younger than Ergovich. I mean, we all call Ergovich prospect. Daniel Dubois is young. He's like twenty one or twenty two. I mean. I don't mind him taking fights like this just because he is still in the learning process. But I'm following him all the way through. He fights, I'm watching. It's, he's that talented and it's that simple. Obviously, the biggest fight this, uh, the biggest fight card this weekend, uh, or the, I should say the most high-profile, close big fight this weekend, because the biggest card might be the DAZN one. But from Ontario, on Fox, Tony Harrison fights Jermel Charlo in a rematch for Harrison's WBC junior middleweight title. F.A. Ajagbe is fighting Iago Kaladze at heavyweight. And we're going to see, because of visa issues, we will not see Rigando. We'll see Carlos Balderas fighting Rene Giron. There's a few other noteworthy names in the card. Maybe Andre Durrell, Hugo Centeno Jr. Odds of the fight as follows. Charlo's like a 2-1 to one favorite, maybe just under a 3-1 to one favorite, depending on where you look. This is a great fight. I th- I should say this is probably the best fight of the weekend. It's awesome. I can't wait for it. There's a lot of great storylines. Ajagbe is like a 50-to-1 favorite, maybe 40-to-1 favorite, depending where you look. You know, I think Fox does need to bring in a big, ra- uh, big rating because 
we what we've seen so far from Fox is uh, the the numbers during NFL season last year during December and January were pretty freaking good. I shouldn't say pretty. They're good. They're fine. They're doing fine in those in those fights. They're doing fine. Some of them were pretty freaking good. The the Caleb plan on FS1 number was amazing. Um, obviously, when Thurman fought, that guy, you know, the, the whole show didn't average a great number, but Thurman's fight did do a pretty good number. Uh, outside of NFL season, they've struggled. So let's hope that the NFL promo can help out this free show on Fox. All right. And then moving on, on Monday, December 23rd, uh, from Yokohama, Japan on ESPN Plus, we have Ryoto Murata versus Stephen Butler for Murata's WBA regular middleweight title. Also on the card, Ken Shiro versus Randy uh, Pedal Korean for Shiro's WBC junior flyweight title. And then I'm not even going to pronounce it for IBF flyweight title, Marudi Mathalane versus Akira Yagashi for Mathalane's IBF flyweight title. And then Chocolatito making his comeback in an eight-rounder. This is a really strong card top to bottom in terms of action. Finally, on to Saturday, December 28th. And no, I couldn't see any odds out now for some of these fights, but they're pretty closely matched fights for the most part. Um, and, and and I think they're they're all it's that's a worthy that's a worthy fight card. Uh, that's a worthy fight card to pay attention to. Then let's go to the 28th. Gervonta from Atlanta on Showtime. This is like a legit good card uh, that we almost we almost never get this on, a, on this late in the year. Gervonta Davis fighting Yorkis Gamboa for a vacant WBA regular lightweight title. Also in the card, Jean Pascal fights Badu Jack for Pascal's WBA regular light heavyweight title. And then Jose Uzcateki fights Lionel Thompson at super middleweight. Davis is between a 10 and 20 to 1 favorite on early odds. He's a star in the making. I mean, Gamboa is a bit washed now. I do love seeing all the people on social media talking about how Gamboa was viewed as this amazing opponent for Crawford, and now David, he's fighting Davis, and he's not an amazing opponent. Well, that was years ago, and he was not – I wouldn't say he's an amazing opponent for Crawford back then, but he's a pretty good opponent. And, uh, well, he's – Gamboa is a little bit washy right now. Like, he has not looked great since that fight uh <laughs> and it's not a great fight for i mean it's fine you know what it's fine this is a fine fight for for javante davis he's moving up you, you like it's kind of acknowledged when you move up unless you're moving up and someone else is moving down or you're moving up to take on some huge challenge usually when you move up you get a fight or two uh where you adjust you know especially for if you're someone like davis who's still young but Davis does need to step up his level of competition. I mean, he owns a quality win when he was at 130. Um, but where I'd say it's like when he was at 130, he had the opportunity to fight so many different fighters. Now, a lot, I mean, a lot of them were, weren't with Showtime, you know, and this goes back. Same thing that's happening with Crawford. It's just happening at a, at a higher profile weight class than it is with, with Davis. But da- look, you got to promote Davis. I mean, this guy can fight Lomachenko this year on pay-per-view, and if he wins that, he's a legit star. And then that ends the discussion of level of competition. Uh, I don't know how fighting Yorkis Gamboa is is, prepping him for Lomachenko in the ring, other than he gets to make weight 
at 135 once and just see how it feels and probably beat the guy and get a big knockout. But, you know, we're building, we're in the star building process here. Um, and that's it. So coming up, I mean, I'll do a year end review kind of like I did last year where I kind of look at each service and what they've given you this year and how much it costs and what the value is. And then I've wanted to do a couple, there's a couple other evergreen episodes I've wanted to do for a while. I think I'll get to those in January. Um, and then we're rolling, but happy holidays. Probably I'll do my episode, right. My last episode on the 31st or the 30th. And, and that's, I mean, enjoy Christmas, enjoy Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate Kwanzaa. These are, you know, by even going back to Showtime Bar, I love the Jean-Pascal Badu-Jack fight. It, the, this is really good. I mean, we never got this kind of stuff when it was just the HBO and Showtime universe. And we're getting like three pretty good cards, four pretty good cards kind of. Uh, certainly a lot of good fights on these cards starting tomorrow uh, over the next week. So enjoy it, guys. I will talk to you in two weeks. Bye. Did you get what you was looking for?